come at a good Sunday. This is our first Sunday of the month, which means that we're going to be celebrating communion together. So if on your way in you didn't receive communion elements that look like this, we got little cups and wafers and all prepackaged. Uh, go ahead and raise a hand. We're going to have uh, one of our leaders coming around, and they'll get communion elements to you here. Uh, and just hang on to those for the end of our service. We'll partake in that uh, together. But um, glad you found us here in Freeman Auditorium. This is, uh, as many of you know, this is not our normal meeting space. Uh, we're typically an alumni hall. And just as a heads up, we're going to be we're going to be moving around some uh, a little bit more this next semester, and uh, we're going to keep you posted on all of that uh, through our texting service. And so again, you, you you're going to get tired of hearing about it, but you just need to know this is how we communicate. If you're not on our texting service, jump on our texting service. I realize a text went out last night and it came through a different number. Don't be alarmed. We're not switching numbers. That was a fluke. Um, we are still at that 814 number, so uh, just, just stay in touch with us that way and we'll keep you all up to date. So. This morning, uh, we are wrapping up a series that we've been in for the better part of this fall semester called Essentials, Ancient Doctrines for Today. And with each week, we've been examining some core Christian beliefs um, around the Christian faith. So, so what do we believe about God? What do we believe about Scripture? What do we believe about sin, about Jesus? What do we think about the Holy Spirit? And we talked about all of these different subjects, and today... We're closing out the series by talking about the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the church. By the way, friends, I hope this series has been helpful to you. Uh, my, my hope and desire is that uh, it, it's never to get up and just talk at you. In a lot of weeks, it feels like that's what I do. I just get up and I just talk at faces and I talk at empty stairs, like post-game day stairs. Like, like man, I'm, just, I'm still waking up, Pastor. I'm, I just give me like a good two more hours and I'm tracking with you. But, and so hopefully uh, somewhere in your sleep deprivation, you have gained some insight and some help through this series on doctrines that we've been in. And so today we're going to be talking about the church. What do we believe about the church. Let me just clarify a couple of things before we dive into the meat of this message. Uh, before we go any further, let me just say, when we're talking about the church, about what we believe about the church, we're not talking about any specific kind of church or a type of church. Some of you, you hear the word church and you automatically go back to your, the church that you grew up in back home or maybe you think about you know, the, the church environment that you've been in in the past. We're not talking about any specific church. We're not talking about this church, this particular church here at ACF. Though I can probably easily preach a very simple three-point sermon on our church. This church is awesome, the pastor's amazing, you should join this church, amen, hallelujah, right? I'm kidding. I mean, this message is not about this church, or any particular church for that matter. When we're talking about the church, we're talking about the capital C church. In other words, we're talking about the global, the universal body of believers, everyone who professes faith in Christ all over the world, anywhere in the world. We're talking about the general church, the capital C church everywhere. And because we're talking about the global universal church, the universal body of believers, we're also not talking about our personal preferences when it comes to the church. I need to clarify that. 
You know, when we're talking about what we believe about the church, I, I find that oftentimes it's easy to get caught up in sort of this discussion and this discourse around what we believe the church should be, what we believe the church should be like. And more often than not, those conversations come down to personal preferences, whether it's about the music style or the worship songs or, or whether it's about the preaching style or, or whether it's about the kinds of ministries that the church has to offer or how long a church service ought to be versus how short a church service ought to be or something as silly as the kind of coffee that the church serves, right? Like, I mean, really, all of that really comes down to personal preference. That's what we're talking about here. Now, listen, friends, I'm not saying your personal preferences don't matter. In fact, I would strongly prefer that churches would have good coffee as a personal conviction of mine. Uh, but, but, and by the way, I don't think we have terrible coffee here at ACF. I'm just saying that's not what this message is about. This message is not about personal preferences. When we're talking about what we believe about the church, the doctrine of the church, the question I want us to be able to answer by the end of our time is, what makes a church a true church what makes a church a true biblical new testament church like what really qualifies a church as a church is it as simple as whenever a group of believers gather together that's the church is a small group bible study a church it is a church where uh, you know a group of people go out and do good in their community and add value in their community. Is that, is that church? Is church when you send off a team overseas to a mission trip somewhere, or maybe even nationally, is that what church is about? When people gather on a Sunday morning for an hour or so, is this church? Like, what do we mean when we say church? What is a true New Testament biblical church? I want to answer that question using this diagram. I want to show you this diagram. I've compiled for you a list of 10 things that have historically been identified as key markers that make up a true church. These are things that biblical scholars, church historians, and theologians uh, worldwide have identified as key markers of a tried and true church. Now, there are probably a few more qualifiers you can add to this list, but at the least, these 10 are largely agreed upon as being key markers that qualify a church as a church. By the way, as college students, I know that you're not going to be with us here at this church forever, though I wish I could hold on to you forever. I know that you are moving on to bigger and better things and your time with us, I know, is limited. And my hope is that as you leave from this place, you would go searching for a church wherever God plants you. If I can encourage you in your pursuit of a church, I would encourage you to look for these qualifiers as you go searching for a church. If you want to find a true, healthy, New Testament, biblical kind of church, look for these 10 key markers, all right? Now, you ready for this 10-point sermon? Yeah, I've never preached a 10-point sermon in my life. All I got to say, I hope you don't have lunch plans, okay? That, that's all I'm going to say. Because <laughs> I is, 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 Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on each point. Relax. And be like, oh, Jesus, help us. Take the wheel. Like, that, this is, we're going to lean into this together, and we're not going to be here all day. But I do, I mean, truth be told, this really should be a multi-part series. I mean, we can spend quite a bit of time on each point. 
Um, but I, I do want to touch on every single one of them because I think it warrants some, at least just a few brief moments of discussion. And so I want you to look at, with this, uh, look at this diagram with me for a minute. Starting at the top left uh, corner of your screen, you've got biblical preaching. Or you can substitute this for a number of things, really, like um, sound doctrine or, or uh, gospel proclamation. Basically, a church that preaches the gospel, a, a church that has its foundations built on sound doctrine is a pretty good indicator that you are in a true, healthy, biblical church. If that church is not grounded in scriptural truths, if they're proclaiming something other than the good news of who Jesus is and, and what he has done, if they're preaching a gospel that is different from the gospel of Jesus, I'm telling you right now, you better steer clear. The mark of a true church is one that preaches the gospel of Jesus. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 10. You don't need to turn there. We'll put it up here on the screen. We're going to bounce back and forth all over, all over scripture here. So uh, we'll have the text up here on the screen for you to look along. Romans chapter 10, Paul says this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, that ought to be good news. That ought to be good news to your soul. That ought, be, that ought to be good news to your friends who don't know Jesus. That ought to be good news for your family members and your relatives that don't know Jesus. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord without exception will be saved. But then how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And friends, I hope you know that the job of preaching is not up to the preacher. Your life preaches a sermon every single day. Your life, how you live, the decisions that you make, how you interact with one another and how you interact with the world. Emily, I loved what Emily brought before us in worship. How you interact with the world, how you interact with this campus is a sermon in and of itself. It says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, the preaching of God's word, and, and, and I don't know where it's evolved into this, but the preaching of God's word is not just about disseminating information. You can go look up YouTube videos and podcasts and gain all kinds of information, but the preaching of God's word is not just about getting more information into your head. It is not entertaining the mind with pithy sayings and, and, and creative sermon outlines and funny stories. That's not what the preaching of the word is ultimately about. The preaching of God's word is a specific ministry that the Holy Spirit uses to change the hearts and the minds of its hearers. It has nothing to do with the preacher. When the, when the preaching, the ministry of the preaching of God's word goes forth, the Holy Spirit uses that to change the hearts and the minds of its hearers, whereby they are led to call on the name of the Lord. That's what biblical preaching does. And every healthy church has biblical preaching as a key marker. I want to go to this next one, genuine worship, genuine worship. Now, I'm not talking about musical worship, though that's a part of it. I'm not talking about the band or what the worship team does every Sunday, though that's all a part of worship, but that is not the whole 
of worship. Worship is making the primary thing the primary thing. That's what worship is. Worship is about making the primary thing the primary thing. In other words, what we worship, we orient our lives around. Whatever we worship, it doesn't have to be God. It doesn't have to be like whatever we attach worth to, whatever, that's what worship is, worth-ship. What we attach worth to, we tend to orient our lives around. And so Penn State football is near and dear to many of our hearts. We make it a point to get season tickets as soon as we can. We make it to every game, and we worship. We worship. Yeah, we are. We are, right? Like that's, that's, kind, that's a kind of worship service in and of itself. What we attach worth to, we orient our lives around. Worship is making the primary thing the primary thing. And a church that makes much of Jesus, a church community that, may, that has made the glory of God the primary thing, that's a church that knows what it means to engage in genuine worship. Jesus gives us a sense of this in the most simple and yet weightiest command in all of Scripture. You know this, right? In Matthew chapter 22, he says to a group of religious leaders and Pharisees, he says to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus says right here, right here, right here, right here, this is the most important thing. This is how you identify genuine worship from false worship. Where do all your heart's affections move towards? In what direction do all of your soul's desires lean? What most occupies all of your mind? Jesus says genuine worship is when all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind are moving towards greater love for God. That's worship. It's not about songs, it's not about singing, it's not even about what we do here. Worship is taking all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind, this right here is the greatest commandment. You wanna get, you, wor- you shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind right here. You bring it before God and you say, oh God, I'm moving myself, moving my life. Every part of my being is moved towards greater love for you. That's worship. What we worship, we orient our lives around. Genuine worship. If you find a church that makes much of Jesus, stick around because you have found a church that engages in genuine worship. The next is holy sacraments. Now, when I say holy sacraments, um, uh, you can replace this with holy ordinances or some theologians use the term means of grace. I'm talking about two specific pieces that Jesus has instructed the church to partake in. Those two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. In Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, Jesus instructs us to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The early church had a precedent for for baptizing believers often. We hear at ACF, we baptize people. In various gospel accounts, Jesus instructs his disciples to partake in the Lord's Supper. In fact, if you've been around in ACF any length of time, you know that we are active participants in the Lord's Supper. And today, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together here in a little while. But, But these are two specific sacraments that were given by Jesus specifically to the church. 
Now listen, I'm not saying that it's wrong or immoral or unbiblical for non-church groups to participate in these sacraments. But you need to know that these sacraments were originally given to the church with the intention that these ordinances will be practiced within a faithful church body. And so uh, if you got baptized with a non-church group, that doesn't negate your baptism, okay? Please don't hear me saying that. If you have ever taken communion outside of a church context, a church, local church body, I'm not saying you're sinning. That's not, that's not what I'm trying to say. But at the least, a church, a true church, should be practicing these two holy sacraments, baptism and holy communion, as Christ instructed us to. That's another key marker of a true church. Faithful prayer is the next one. Now, this is a simple one, and we probably don't need to spend a ton of time here, but I'll simply say this. A church that fails to pray is a failing church. That's it. A church that fails to pray is a failing church. You know what a church that fails to pray is essentially communicating? We can do this thing on our own. God, we got this. You made the earth, you called the church together, now just sit back, we got it from here. And then somehow we forget that, that Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, hey, it's me, I'm, I'm building the church. I'm the one who builds this church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. You see, a, a prayerless church is a telltale sign of great spiritual pride. It's not apathy so much. Apathy is a byproduct. It's a fruit of a prayerless church. But the source of a prayerless church, really, it's pride. It's saying, God, I got this. We got this. We can be the church without you. On the other hand, a church that is faithful to pray is one that recognizes their utter need and desperation for God. It's like, God, we can't do this. A church that prays believes the words of Christ as indicated in John 15, where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Faithful prayer is the acknowledgement that we are a community of people who are hopelessly dependent on a divine God that says we can't do it on our own. We cannot be the church by ourselves on our own. Now we're gonna actually spend a good portion of next semester and spring semester on a series devoted to prayer, specifically the Lord's Prayer. And so uh, I hope you can join us for that journey and, and that, that's coming down the pipeline. And so I'm gonna leave that here for now, faithful prayer. We're gonna move on from this particular point and we're gonna push this off into spring semester. We'll love to unpack prayer just a little bit more in the future, but for now, Let's move to the next one. The next key marker is true fellowship, but I'm gonna tie this together with covenant membership. Okay, this is a BOGO deal, all right? Buy one, get one. This is uh, true fellowship and covenant membership because they actually go hand in hand, and you'll see what I mean in just a minute. Now, I say true fellowship because I believe there is a such thing as fake fellowship. I believe there is such a thing as superficial, perhaps is the better word, fellowship. But the marks of a true church embodies true fellowship. If you look at the Acts church, you'll see that in Acts chapter 4, that the full number of those who believe, that's the church, okay? That's the, the, the koinonia, the people of God, the church were of one heart and soul. 
They were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. You see, the fellowship of the early church, you need to understand, I think for, for many of us in our common modern-day understanding, fellowship is like just kind of hanging around together. Fellowship of the early church moved beyond just close proximity. They weren't just together in a physical kind of way and said, we had fellowship. That's not what qualified their fellowship. You see, that's why a people that simply gather together in a space cannot be categorized as a church. That's not a church. Otherwise, you can say, your classes are a kind of church. You're all gathered in close proximity. I know some of you are like, heck no, that ain't church. I'll tell you, that's hell on earth. I'll tell you that. It ain't church, right? It's like, amen. Some of you are like, I'm not in law. I see you. Like, it's like, no, 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 no. It would be like saying, well, if, it, if a fellowship is really about, you know, just being in close proximity, anytime you step into a restaurant, you're all under one roof, right? Like you're together in close proximity. I mean, when COVID hit, everything, like, no, you spread out, be out here. Be, we're not going to sit under one roof, but when we sit under one roof, like, can we say, that's fellowship, that is church. That's absurd. Right? I don't think anyone would really say that. I think it's as absurd as saying because we gather in close proximity on a Sunday morning for an hour or so, this is church. Now, I realize the contents are different. What we do here on a Sunday morning is different than what we do at a restaurant or in a classroom. I realize that. But I think it has less to do with the content of the time and more with the nature of the people. You see, the church has to be about moving beyond just gathering in close proximity, and it has to move into a mutual sharing of life together to the point where we have everything in common. Now, let me just clarify that, because uh, some of you hearing that, you're like, ain't no way, that, that's, just, that's, not, that's not even possible. How, how, do we, how could we possibly have everything in common with a couple of hundred people that we don't even know? Let me just clarify what this means. This isn't saying that now you all of a sudden have the same interests, same hobbies, same desires. You all like to eat at the same places, do the same thing, listen to the same music. You are a homogenous group. Now this is what fellowship is. No, that's not what this is saying. This isn't saying you now have to spend every waking moment with these people around you. Although if that's what you want to do, that's up to you. But that is not what this passage is suggesting. This is where covenant membership actually comes into play. You see, covenant membership is when someone enters into a community and says, I covenant to be a part of this community in a way that adds to the flourishing of this fellowship. Covenant membership is when someone enters in and says, I want to be a part of this community in a way that adds to the flourishing of this fellowship. Let me give you an example. When my wife and I, um, we lead couples through premarital counseling, you know, couples get engaged, they come to us, they ask me to marry them, and so we lead them through six sessions of premarital counseling, and in one of the sessions early on, we ask a very simple question. Is marriage a contract or a covenant? Is marriage a contract or a covenant? And it's sort of a trick question. We put it in there just to have some conversation starters, because the answer is yes. Yes, in the eyes of the state, marriage is a contract. 
When you're getting married, two people literally go in and sign a contract that binds the two people together in a legal kind of way. But from a biblical standpoint, and in the eyes of God, marriage is a covenant. In fact, that word covenant, I, I, I wish we had more time to talk about this, but that word covenant is a massive word all throughout Scripture. When, when you see God interacting with his people, it's in the context of covenant. And when he calls his people to interact with one another, it's in the context of covenant. It's not in the context of contract. Now, the difference between contract and covenant is subtle because they're both kinds of promises, but it has massive differences in its implication. A contract, you know this, right? You've signed a contract for your lease or you, you sign a contract. You've heard, you know, athletes signing contracts and terms and all these things, right? Like a contract is a set of agreed upon terms that both parties sign onto. And if either party violates those terms, the contract is breached. It's broken, right? It's null and void. It no longer holds. And oftentimes, the offending party may need to make some restitution or compensation for the breach contract. But essentially, in a contract, you're as good as the other party's willingness to live up to those terms. That's, that's a contract. A covenant, on the other hand, is a commitment that is made regardless of the terms at hand. A covenant, in other words, is when someone says, even if you break the terms, I'm still in. Do you see why marriage is both a contract and a covenant? A thriving, flourishing marriage is truly in the context of a covenant because a covenant says, hey, you can screw up royally, hon, but I ain't going anywhere, right? You can mess up. You, you, you might drive me nuts, like, I, that's in the terms, that's in the fine prints, don't drive me nuts, right? But, like, but, but if you don't hold, hold your end of the bargain, I'm telling you, because I covenanted to you, I am committed to this. I'm not going anywhere. You can break your terms, you can violate the contract, you can violate the terms, but a covenant says, no, 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 I'm in this for the long haul. Do you see why God would covenant with us? Do you understand? God is like, hey, sons and daughters, you can keep walking away. You can keep walking away like sheep who've gone astray, choosing their own separate ways, but I'm telling you right now, I'm not going anywhere. I covenant with you. Now take that in the context of the church. A church is designed and intended to house covenant membership. The church is to operate in that sort of covenantal way where we say, hey, I am here with you because I am here because I, I want to add to the flourishing of this fellowship. A covenant member doesn't attend a church to suck it dry of, of its services and consume the services and say, well, I got something out of it. Thank God that church must be for me. No, no, no. Covenant membership is saying, I am an active contributing member to this body, to the flourishing of this fellowship, and I covenant to be a member of this community. And that's what it means to be of one heart and soul and to have everything in common. That's the kind of fellowship that moved the early church beyond just close proximity and moved them into a deep sense of shared life together. 
And the church is to be marked by that kind of true fellowship and covenant membership. I so wish I could talk more on this because I've got, I, I, I don't know if you can tell, I've got some convictions around these points, uh, but, but we'll, we'll move on for now. The next one is gonna be another two for one. Spiritual growth and ministry to in and out. And I don't mean ministry to the burger joint in and out, you know, and I will say uh, it is the superior burger joint over Shake Shack, over Five Guys. Just, if you have an in and out, um, you, you just, you need to have it. You need to have it. It, it is gospel informative, okay? So, uh, what, okay, so, so what do I mean by uh, ministry to in and out? Ministry to those inside the church and to those outside of the church. The church has a responsibility to care for the sheep within the sheepfold, those who are part of the covenant membership, those who are part of the body of Christ inside the church, the believers of the body. And simultaneously, the church has a call to reach those who are outside of the church, outside of the sheepfold. And we use terms like evangelism or outreach for ministries like that. And for ministries inside the church, we call that discipleship or Christian education or some version of that. And friends, I'm here to tell you the church does both. There are parachurch ministries on campus and there are parachurch ministries outside of campus that specialize in evangelism. That's like, that's kind of their driving sort of mission behind what they do. Uh, we, have a, uh, we have a couple of friends who are Young Life regional directors out in towards the Philly area. They go into high schools and they go into all these schools and, and they are evangelistic. Man, the, the fire that burns for, for, for winning these high school kids to Jesus and, and showing them that there is a better way than the life that they're pursuing, like chase Jesus. I mean, it, it is, it's profound. It's amazing. There are other parachurch ministries that lean into disciple making. Man, this, we want to grow and mature disciples of Jesus and, and train up these believers in Christ and, and raise them up to maturity. I thank God for all of those ministries. The church, the church is called to do all of it. The church is called to partake in all of it. That's why we need parachurch ministries. Para being coming alongside, para come alongside the church to fuel, I'm telling you right now, when I get around my young life friends, I get fueled for evangelism, fueled for outreach. When I get alongside friends who are passionate about Bible studies and growing in the knowledge of God, man, I get fueled for discipleship. We need parachurch ministries, but the parachurch ministry never replaces the church. The church is called to do both, ministry to those in and out, with the end goal in mind being spiritual growth. Uh, I, want to, I want to look at this uh, passage real quick. Ephesians chapter four, um, Paul says this, and he, he's, being, he's talking about Christ. Christ gave, who did he give what to? The church. Christ gave the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Notice he calls the church to both discipleship and evangelism. He gave the church evangelists and shepherds and teachers and prophets and apostles. To what end? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to, hear those two words, grow up. Say those two words with me. Grow up. Turn to someone next to you and tell them, grow up. Go ahead, right now, tell them, grow up. Grow up. That's right. We are to grow. Then don't get offended. Don't get, those aren't your friend's words. This is scripture, all right? That's scripture talking to you, right? The scripture says we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Friends, church, you think just maybe, just maybe. God wants the church and its members to be growing spiritually. Would that be a fair assessment? I mean, just on this one passage alone, I think you would have to draw that as your single unequivocal conclusion that God wants his church and its members to be growing spiritually. In fact, I'd go as far as to say a church where the members are not spiritually growing is a dying church. It may not be completely dead. You may have people still coming in through the doors, but a church that has its members where they are not spiritually growing and maturing is on the road to decease. It's a dying church. It's like, Dan, you're, you're coming on pretty hard. It's like, look, this, this is what Scripture teaches. I'm not, I'm not even trying to, uh, I'm not trying to make it more than it is. But I think when you look throughout scripture, God has a heart, God has a passion for spiritual growth. A lot of people, when they come to campus here at Penn State, They'll come uh, to ACF and they'll visit other campus ministries and all these things and, and they'll, they'll try to process through and discern through like where, where am I supposed to go? Where do I fit? Where, what group, what ministry should, be, should I be a part of? Never do I want to say ACF is the answer because I don't believe that. I'm, I'm telling you right now, as the pastor of ACF, I don't believe that ACF is for everyone. I don't believe that ACF is like the answer to everyone's spiritual problems. What I say to students is, find some place where you will find fertile soil for spiritual growth. Anywhere. Any, and the fact is, we have, we have a lot of dynamic, amazing campus ministries here on campus that have that, that have that fertile soil. You see, what I don't want is for people to go to, to uh, uh, join a group that says, these people seem cool, and you go through four years of those cool people, and you graduate, high school, uh, graduate college realizing there was no spiritual growth that actually took place. You hung around with a lot of cool people. You did a lot of cool things, but there was no spiritual growth that actually took place. The church is to be the first and foremost place where we encourage, where we create that fertile soil that says, hey, come join us as we pursue God and we chase after God. And as God grows us, may we be the church that God has intended us to be. A true church, a healthy New Testament church will be a church that is growing. Not numerically, but spiritually and in maturity. And many, in many ways, this will show itself in the ministries with those inside and outside the church. I want to go through these last two quickly here, and we'll wrap up. Let me go through these last two. At first glance, these last two might be the least exciting, but these two pieces have profound theological and practical impact on the church. First, church governance. The New Testament church was known to have leaders and those in spiritual authority who were charged to govern and oversee 
the affairs and the ministries of the church. From the early days in the book of Acts, if you remember back in Acts chapter 6, the disciples began to notice that certain ministries were going undone. They were being neglected. And so what did they do? They identified and empowered leaders to oversee those ministries. In places like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, Paul describes the kinds of leaders that are to lead the church. They're called elders and deacons. And it so happens that we have those here in ACF. And what they do is they care for and nurture the flock of God in their care. That's their job. The job of the governing body of the church leaders, whether it's the group of elders, the plurality of elders, or a team of deacons, or deaconesses, or it's a governing board of some kind, or an executive board of some kind, it is to care for and nurture the body of Christ that God has entrusted to them. That's their job. And because that's their job, the job of the members of the church, our job, you may not like this, is to then joyfully submit to their care. That's how God designed the church to operate. In fact, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Church leaders, you will give an account for your leadership one day. If you serve in any form of church leadership, you will give an account for your leadership. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I don't know the passage here, but 1 Timothy chapter 2 instructs us to pray for our leaders. Pray for our leaders. Because spiritual leadership matters. And church governance is something that God has put in place for the benefit and the betterment of the body of Christ. Now, what do we do about bad church governance? What do we do about bad leaders, corrupt leaders who are in, in, in it for themselves? That's another message for another time and place. But I think for a lot of us, we say, I don't want to submit to that. And so we don't submit at all. And we throw church governance out the window. But church governance is actually a means of God's grace that he's imparted to the church to help lead and guide the church. A church without proper governance will be in disarray. This last one, proper discipline. We're at number 10, folks. We did it, okay? We're, we're at the finish line. Proper discipline, okay? Now, this might be the least sexiest of them all. It's like, oh, man, proper discipline. Like, what, what does this even mean? Again, these are not my ideas. These are things that are prescribed by God in Scripture, and churches that exhibit these qualities are actually some of the healthiest functioning New Testament churches that you'll come across. And so what do we mean by church discipline? Church discipline at its most extreme and rare form is excommunication. Now, in all my times in pastoral ministry, I've never had a moment where a church had to excommunicate a member from the church. Yeah, but a lot of times when people hear church discipline, I think that's where their mind goes. They go to the extreme and often rare cases of excommunication. That is a form of church discipline, by the way. Church discipline in its far more common form is holding each other accountable. It's speaking the truth in love the hard truth, but in love. It's engaging in healthy conflict when avoiding conflict would be far easier. 
Church discipline is about guarding right and sound doctrine within the body of believers. It can be a simple thing as a conversation that's had between a brother and a sister, or brother, brother, sister, sister, whatever, within the body of Christ that says, hey, I don't know that you're seeing things from a clear lens. Can I, can I offer some biblical instruction here? Can I, can I offer some loving correction here to your perspective that might be just a little bit, a little bit skewed? That's church discipline. You know, the church discipline isn't like hitting over the head people with the Bible and a rod. It's like, you know, dang you, you know, like that's not, that's not church discipline. That, that's, just, that's abuse. I mean, I don't know what that is. That's not church discipline. Church discipline is simply coming alongside each other in a loving manner. It's essentially committing basically to all of these 10 things. It's saying we commit to these 10, 10 things that make up a true church where we're holding to these things together and I'm holding in covenant membership, I'm holding my brothers and sisters to that same value. If these are all things that are truly valued within a church body, these 10 factors, you're gonna need some sort of mechanism for when people move out of line from these things and move out of line, people will. I'll tell you that. And when that happens, church discipline becomes the mechanism for restoring a wayward member. Church discipline is really about restoration. It's not about punishment. A lot of people think church discipline, it's like when you screw up in the church, bah, you, get, you get whacked in the head. It's like church discipline. No, 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 no. Church discipline is when a member, by the way, this is for believers. This is not for non-believers. Church discipline does not apply for non-believers. This, this is meant for inside the body of Christ, inside covenant membership. Those who have said, I covenant to be a member here of this fellowship, of this community. It's, it's, it's when a person within that covenant fellowship starts moving out of bounds, church discipline is about coming alongside them and gently restoring them back into bounds. He's saying, come on, friend. Won't you repent won't you come back into right standings with God? Church discipline is actually a means of grace. Scripture tells us that the Father disciplines those whom he loves. And if we say that we love one another, do you think maybe we might be called to discipline one another? I know it sounds weird. Even coming out of my mouth, I'm like, ooh, I don't like that. I don't like that. But but you know what I mean? Like, could it be that God would call us to say, hey, we're actually accountable to each other. We're actually called to hold each other accountable. Which actually means that we don't have the right inside the church. Again, if you're, if you're, not, if you're not a member of this particular church community, you're exempt. You're free. You get a, you get a hall pass. Like, it's cool. It's cool, okay? Um, but, but if you're a member of this community, you don't actually get to say, well, that's your life. You do you, and I'll do me. Paul says, mm, the hand can't say to the eye, you do you. I don't need you. The foot can't say to the hand, hey, you, you want to do that? That's fine. That's fine by me. No, we're, we're actually tethered together by the blood of Jesus. And so church discipline might be required every once in a while. Now, I say all of this to you to say no church, no church will be a 10 out of 10 on all of these things. Can we put that next slide up? Look at these 10 things. 
No church that you come across is going to be a perfect 10 out of 10 on all 10 of these points. As long as I've I've been involved in church ministry, I've never come across a church that fully and completely embodied all of these characteristics. To put it more simply, no church is perfect. This would be the perfect church. If, If like you're hitting tens on every single one of these pieces and it's done with grace and love and, and, and compassion and power of the Holy Spirit is infusing all of this. It's like, man, would you love to be part of a church like that? Yes, sign me up, sign me up, right? No church is perfect. We're not a perfect church here at ACF. But by God's grace, I pray that we are a community that is growing in all of these areas to varying degrees. Some days we're gonna get genuine worship more right than proper discipline. Some days we're gonna get spiritual growth less right than maybe the the faithful prayer. Some seasons in the church's life, you're you're gonna find sort of this graph moving up and down, but by God's grace, We would all be part of a church, whether it's your time here at Penn State, whether you call ACF your home church, which by the way, if you call ACF your home church here at Penn State, man, we are so thrilled, we're so glad. We hope and pray that during your time, you're seeing all of these manifest in varying degrees. At least that's our hope as a church leadership team and a governance board here at ACF. And my prayer and hope for you is that when you leave Penn State, that you would find a church, not the perfect church, because again, you're not gonna find that. But my hope is that you would find a church that is growing in all of these areas to varying degrees by God's grace. Can I pray for us as a church?